Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Somebody can lend me a watch because I feel like I'm going to do a magic trick. Uh, no, because I use my cell phone as my watch, but I want to keep looking at my cell phone. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, it's 7:15. I've been asked to speak on each of the 613 commandments. <laughs> One of the sad things that happened to Jewish life in modernity is that the word religious has come to be associated in people's minds exclusively with ritual observance. So that if two Jews are speaking about a third, a not uncommon occurrence in the Jewish community, and the question is raised, is so-and-so religious, the answer yes or no is going to be given based exclusively on the person's ritual observances, he keeps kosher, he keeps Shabbat, he is religious, she doesn't keep kosher, he doesn't keep Shabbat, she's not religious, from which one can form the very erroneous and strange impression that in Judaism, ethics are an extracurricular activity. Now, I say this as a person who is passionately committed to ritual observance. I'll give you three reasons. Without rituals, we don't have holiness. Think about, for most of us here, an experience of the holy. You probably think of Shabbat. And those things that make the Shabbat feel holy tend to be rituals. I'll give you one example. It's well known that the Sabbath is inaugurated with the lighting of two Shabbat candles. It's a mitzvah particularly associated with women, though it can be done, of course, by men as well. In how many of your households do you practice the custom of lighting an additional candle for each child in the house? It's a, a common, but not very common. I grew up in a household where my parents did it. I was speaking once with a very great figure. I don't know if you ever had him out to speak here, Abraham Tversky. He's a Hasidic Rebbe, comes from a major dynasty. He's also a psychiatrist. Tversky is the youngest in his household when he was growing up, and he told me that as a child, it was very important and meaningful to him that he knew that because he existed every Friday night, there was more light in his parents' household. What Swirsky was addressing was the capacity of ritual to speak the language of poetry. All parents hopefully tell their children that they love them and hopefully tell them, to that, tell them that often. And yet many of those children at the age of 20, 25, end up in a therapist's office saying they never felt loved by their parents. So the ritual expression is yet another way to do it. 
So without rituals, we lose a dimension of existence of holiness. Without rituals, we wouldn't have Jewish continuity. Michael Walzer, the Princeton political philosopher, has argued that the story of the Exodus, as recorded in the beginning of the second book of the Torah, Shemot, has affected more movements of social change than any other recorded story in literature. And yet, if we Jews didn't perpetuate that story, commemorate that story every year in the Passover Seder, that story would still affect people, but I don't know if we as Jews would, long, it would exist any longer as a people. And that's, again, the power of ritual. Obviously, if one is a convert to Judaism, one hasn't grown up with the Passover Seder, but I would venture to guess that those who are born Jewish, by and large, know about the Seder, from having experienced it from their parents, their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, and that's how we transmit it. There's another aspect to, uh, to ritual and continuity. How many people know, you can call out the answer if you know it, what was Abraham Lincoln's birthday? February 12th. We all know that because anybody who's 50 or over grew up and that was a day off from school. By the way, here's something fascinating. I am not a believer in astrology. I'm just curious, are there any people who believe in astrology here? Okay, if any of you do, and if any of you are not self-conscious, or sufficiently not self-conscious, raise your hands. Here's a, here's a trivia question. Does anybody know who was born on the same day as Abraham Lincoln? And I mean same day, same year. Somebody was born on February 12th, 1809, who is as famous as Lincoln, which is not an easy thing to be. Charles Darwin. I have no idea what to make of that, for those of you. Okay. When was George, right, I should bring with me a whole list of interesting trivia. When was George Washington's birthday? February 22nd. Younger Americans don't know that, because what happened is they collapsed them all into one Monday, the third Monday in February, honoring all the presidents, which ends on honoring none of them. Could you imagine if a group of rabbis got together and said, you know, from now on, we're going to increase attendance in shul on Yom Kippur. We're going to standardize the date of Yom Kippur, the first Sunday in October. What would happen? Who knows? Maybe the first year some people would come who normally don't. But there would be very quickly a real drop-off in attendance. Why? Because part of the power of a ritual is that you have to adjust your life to the ritual. If the ritual can be discarded or transformed whenever it's inconvenient, you're making it very explicit that the ritual has no intrinsic significance. That's why in 3,000 years of Jewish history, if you notice, it has never once happened that the holidays arrived on time. <laughs> Every year, the holidays are early this year. Believe me, this year the holidays were late, you know. And then rituals also have the enormous capacity to teach ethics. Today, you can go into a supermarket anywhere in the country and find an enormous number of products that have rabbinical supervision. When I was a child growing up in a religious and Orthodox household in Brooklyn, uh, you didn't have nearly as much rabbinical supervision. So if you came from a kosher household, you were very punctilious about only buying the meat, obviously, from a kosher butcher. And when it came to dairy products, we generally looked at the ingredients. My friend Dennis Prager told me that when he was six years old, the first words he learned to read in English 
were pure vegetable shortening only. He said it was not a bad thing to learn at the age of six that you can't have every candy bar in the candy store. Having said that, though, what happened was ethics somehow got a little sign glide in significance, which was peculiar. Like Hillel, you know, I was mentioning some people earlier, the tradition where he says the essence of Judaism to a would-be convert, what's hateful unto you, don't do unto your neighbor, the rest is commentary. A century uh, after Hillel lived Rabbi Akiva. And Akiva said, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a or the major principle in the Torah. I sat down some years ago to start trying to compile a Jewish uh, code, a code of Jewish ethics. And you have to have some guiding principles, obviously, when you're doing it. So one of my, and I, what had happened was I'd been writing about issues that have dealt with those issues for many years, and I didn't want to just do a rehash of things I'd already written about. And so I sat down, like I was back in high school, with note cards. You know, whenever I'd get to a sumber, no, certain number of cards on a subject, I would start organizing them. But one of my guiding principles was Judaism's radical insistence on free will. So you might say, so what's my nafkam? You know, what's the big deal? Doesn't everybody believe in free will? And the answer is not actually. Increasingly, if one removes God from the picture and the only thing that's real is the physical, then what really are the determinants of human behavior? And generally, it resolves that there are two determinants of human behavior, heredity and environment. I remember I once saw a, a cartoon showing a young boy with his open report card and his father standing over him scowling because the grades were all Ds and Fs. And the kid is saying to the father, what do you think it is, Dad, heredity or environment? <laughs> Probably the most famous criminal defense lawyer in American history and also probably America's most famous religious skeptic was Clarence Darrow, the early 20th century American lawyer. Obviously, it's of no surprise that Darrow opposed capital punishment. He's a criminal defense lawyer. What is interesting, though, is that Darrow actually opposed all punishment of criminals exactly for the reason that I just gave. As Darrow said, all people are products of two things and two things only, their heredity and environment. They act in exact accord with the heredity which they took from the past and for which they are not responsible, and from the environment we all act the same way. Judaism comes in with an insistence of its belief on free will. So I want to make it clear what I'm saying what I'm not saying. Judaism does not believe we have free will in all areas. I knew by the age of 16 that if I devoted eight hours a day for the rest of my life to studying chemistry, the world of chemistry would not thereby profit. You know, we know. You can't just say if you have a will, you can do it. How many people here uh, have at some point in your life been joggers? Okay, how many of you, keep your hands up until I get, how many of you were able to run eight-minute miles? Seven-minute miles? Six-minute miles? Five-minute miles. I'm a Jewish audience. I'm not expecting <laughs> I'll actually tell you a funny experience I had. I was once giving the talk that I'm actually giving now, a version of it, 
And in the audience that day, it was work I was doing for the Jewish Book Council, and I was giving a brief version of this speech, and one of the other people who was going to speak after me was Eric Kandel. Eric had just that year, or a year or two earlier, won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for a book, well, for a lifetime of work he'd done on it. He also wrote a, an extraordinary book on, on, on memory and its role in his life. So early on in the speech, it was, I had a podium that was very sharply angled, and I put my papers down, and every time I tried to put them down, they kept falling off. Finally, Eric stood up, adjusted the podium, and I remember I said at the time, when I was a kid, they used to have an expression, you know, you don't have to be a Nobel Prize winner to be able to do that. So all of a sudden, you know, I had this Nobel Prize winner adjusting it for me. Then I did this same exercise with jogging. Eric's hand is still up at five minutes. It turned out he had gone to Erasmus Hall High School in Brooklyn and had won a, run a mile in four minutes and 50 seconds. And I said to him, Eric, Genug, it's enough. Is your whole purpose in life to make everybody feel inadequate? It's not enough you won a Nobel Prize. You had to run a sub-five-minute mile. But the point is we don't have free will in every area. You know, we know that in physical areas as well. There's a remarkable, if one can claim to have a favorite Mishnah, my favorite Mishnah, which is the first segment of the oral law, is in Pirkei Avot, The Ethics of the Father, the first Mishnah in the fourth chapter which is a series of questions and answers posed by Ben Zoma. This text actually radically expands possibilities of free will in unexpected ways. The first question that's posed is, Ezehu Chacham, who is a wise man? What's the answer? Anybody know? I'll call anybody who raises their hand. Yes? Halomen Mikol Adam, who is wise, one who learns from every person. I thought that's great, because think in a sense what's being said. Normally, how would we answer who is wise? So number one, we think, well, first of all, you probably have to be born to begin with, with a high IQ. Then you have to have gotten an intense education. But the, and therefore, the number of people who could get, who would be regarded as very wise would of necessity be a very small percentage of the population. But the rabbis expanded. Somebody who's born with a high IQ, has a great education, and just feels that he or she has a lot to teach other people, is going to eventually become less intelligent because they're not really incorporating new information. But the rabbis say everybody can become wise by a willingness to learn from every person and every situation. So suddenly that which we thought is restricted to a small percentage of the population is expanded. Then they ask the question, Ezehu Gibor, who is a strong person. Gibor in modern Hebrew also came to mean who is a hero, but originally it just referred also who is a strong person. Who knows the answer to that? Hakovesha Yitro, one who can overcome his evil, his, his inclination, but the implication is his evil inclination. How do we normally define heroism? We define it in macho terms. I remember my daughter Naomi told me that when she was four, she thought I was the bravest man in the world. A belief that was shattered when she was six, and we went to an amusement park, and I refused to get on the roller coaster. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, physical heroism isn't all that common, and even people who are physically heroic are fortunately not called upon to exercise it that often. Now, it's true 
when heroism is required, it's unbelievably significant. But the rabbis say, who is a hero? One who overcomes his evil inclination. That's something everybody can do, and it's a challenge that we have to confront every day. You know, we all have a variety of weaknesses here. You know, it's easy for me to get self-righteous that I don't have a drinking problem. I happen not to like alcohol. You know, I have my own issues, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. But, uh, but suddenly, heroism becomes accessible to everyone, because if you meet the challenges that your own personal life poses to you, and you overcome it, that's heroic. And then, of course, they ask Ezehu Ashir, who is a wealthy person, Hasameach Bechalko, one who is happy with what he has. For some reason, it's often, in my view, mistranslated as one who is satisfied with what he has. First of all, have you ever met any Jew who's satisfied with what he has? But the question is, can you be happy with what you do have? And that's a real challenge. There happens to be one extraordinarily wealthy person I know who's, you know, on the Forbes famous listing of 400. And I'm sufficiently close with him that I once asked him the sort of question you don't normally ask wealthy people. It's, you know, I said, what is it like to never have to worry about money? And what he said to me was, I'm not that rich. Sheldon Adelson, he doesn't have to worry about money. That's actually part one of the story. There is a part two. By oddest of coincidences, two weeks later, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times business section, headline, for Sheldon Adelson being number three is not enough. It turned out that that year Adelson had been three on the Forbes listing, and he was obsessed with getting ahead of Gates and Buffett. And that, you know, really answered it. So who is rich? One who is happy with what he has. Can one learn to appreciate what one has, you know, without, I'll tell you, the nice part, the happy part, I'm not going to say the nice part, the happy part of being a rabbi is that you are disproportionately exposed to happy events in people's lives. You're there at engagements, you're there at bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, weddings, all sorts of simplas. The less happy part of being a rabbi is you're disproportionately exposed to tragedies in people's lives. One of the saddest experiences I have as a rabbi is when I'll be with some people and they've gotten irrevocable news, either of a death or an illness from which there's not going to be a recovery or an injury. And somebody, one of the people will say, oh, if things could only go back to being the way they used to be, I'd be so happy. But I knew them when things were the way they used to be, and they weren't happy. It's a terrible thing if you can only discover happiness when you no longer have it. And so the rabbis are saying, can you, and I struggle with this, you know, we all of us, not all of us, many of us face financial pressures. I'm one of them, and I struggle with that issue. And, but I realize it's really true. Can you be happy with what you have while you have it? And then suddenly, wealth is also accessible to you. So the rabbis expand the parameters by saying, who is wise? Any one of us here can become wise by our willingness to learn from everyone. Who's a hero? Any one of us can achieve heroism by confronting our own weaknesses and fighting them. Any one of us can achieve wealth by learning to be happy with what we have. I want to share a couple of the themes I adjust in the code. I want to start with forgiveness. I had actually assembled about 200 note cards, and I started categorizing them, and I came to realize that in Judaism, there are really three attitudes towards forgiveness. There are times when it is 
required. There are times when it's optional. And one of the innovative aspects of Judaism, and this will be interesting when we talk about it, there are times when it's actually forbidden. When is it required? The answer is in the large majority of instances. If somebody is hurt and the hurt that they've inflicted or the damage that they've inflicted is not irrevocable and they request forgiveness, you are required to forgive. Now, by the way, sometimes it's not so easy. You could still be hurt. And the rabbi said, okay, but if you can't believe, forgive right away, work on yourself. But they said you should never turn down three requests. And they have to be on three separate occasions. Somebody can't say, do you forgive me? No. Do you forgive me? No. Somebody has to be willing to come to you up to three times. And Maimonides characterizes a person who refuses to forgive by the third request as an achazari, a cruel person. When then, however, is forgiveness optional? It's optional in two circumstances. When it is not requested and when the damage done was irrevocable. Nonetheless, over the years, I've come to understand that it's still, and even in optional circumstances, might be a good idea sometimes to forgive. What led me to that conclusion? Two rabbis whom I have very high regard. One who I mentioned a few minutes ago, Abraham Tversky, and another is Harold Kushner, both of whom I'm very fortunate to be friendly with. Rabbi Tversky became a psychiatrist in the early 60s. And his area of medical specialization has been addictive behavior. In the early 60s, addictive behavior generally was used to refer to alcoholism. By the late 60s, it started to refer to drug addictions. And today we know that the word uh, addiction often refers to a whole variety of self-destructive behaviors. But Tversky's specialty really was alcohol. What's the, what's the major problem for alcoholics? How do they remain non-alcoholic? You know, how do they not drink? How do they remain recoverable? And Tversky was speaking to an alcoholic who explained to him that he realized what were the danger points for him. The danger points for him was when he was in a conflict with somebody. There was a lot of tension with somebody. You know, that sort of situation where you wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and then you can't go back to sleep because you're consumed with thinking what I should have answered or what I should do and this and that. And he said he found out that those were the situations in which he was most apt to drink. And he then said something so penetrating, so smart to Tversky. It applies to everyone here in the shul, whether you have an issue with liquor or not. He said to him, I learned that holding on to a grudge is like allowing the person in the world whom you most dislike to live in your mind rent-free. Why would anybody want to do that? It's such a smart observation. Holding on to a grudge like allowing the person in the world who you most dislike to live in your mind rent-free. A similar sort of thought was conveyed to me by, by Harold Kushner. There was a woman in his congregation whose husband had left her in a disgusting way. You know, he had, he had thrown her over for another woman. Subsequent to the divorce, he was very stingy with their children. He, he really did not act like a mensch. And Kushner was not at all surprised that this woman's anger was very tremendous. What did concern Kushner was, was that 10 years later, her anger was as powerful as it had been. It was not diminishing at all. And he said to her, you've been, for 10 years, you've been walking around 
with a hot poker in your hand, ready to throw it at your ex-husband, and all you've ended up doing is burning a hole in your hand. So sometimes it really is a wise thing to learn how to let go, to forgive. You know, there's an interesting prayer. How many of you, I'm just curious by your showing of hands, there's an old Jewish tradition of saying the Shema Yisrael before you go to sleep at night. Some people literally just say that one word, Shema Yisrael, how many of you do it? Yeah, quite a number of people do it. The most surprising person I ever found out who did it was Mike Wallace. I once saw an interview with Mike Wallace where he said that he had been brought up and he did the Shema uh, at night. Now, some of you might be aware that prayers in Judaism are not a zero-sum game. I've often thought, some people think the prayer service is a little too long. Maybe before they're allowed to add on a prayer, they have to deduct another prayer. So if you look in the Art Scroll Sitter, the Art Scroll, which is a fairly standard Orthodox prayer book, the Shema you're supposed to say before you go to sleep at night is now eight pages. By the time you finish saying it, you're asleep, you know. But one of the prayers is Hareini Mochel. I hereby forgive. In other words, when you go at sleep tonight, you announce all the people you're forgiving. Somebody who hurt me with words, somebody who hurt me financially. By the way, even if you forgive the person, you're still allowed to pursue your financial demand. You don't have to accept that you were cheated, but you don't walk around with the same level of anger. It's a Kabbalistic prayer. How do I know it's Kabbalistic? Do any of you actually say it? Anybody here ever go through saying it? It's very fascinating. If you look up the prayer, it's because it actually is one of the very few instances where I see a reference to reincarnation in Jewish sources. How many people here are open to a belief in reincarnation? Okay. I happen to be one of them for interesting reasons, but I, I can't get into it now. Uh, but in any case, the prayer says, and I forgive one who hurt me, bain begilgal zeh, bain begilgal acher. Somebody who hurt me in this incarnation or in a previous incarnation. But in any case, now I went off subject and I forgot what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Give me one second. I really did not forget what I'm talking about. Okay, wait. Wait, I'm going to figure it out. What the hell did I do that for? When I had gotten into the Shema, Okay, yes. So, okay, so I was talking about reasons why it's good to sometimes let go of the anger, even if you have a right to be angry. Somebody hasn't forgiven you. My wife, Devorah, though, whenever she's heard me speak on this subject, would add on something that's also true. If you do decide to forgive somebody <clears throat> who hasn't requested forgiveness, she said it's probably, if you have any hopes to have any ongoing relationship with them, it's probably best to tell them that they did do something that hurt you. She would do that before Rosh Hashanah, and what she discovered was there were no shortage of people who had hurt her, but who had no idea they had hurt her. You know, sometimes when somebody's hurt us, we think, oh, they know that what they did was mean, but they don't really realize it. They don't know that what they said might have really hurt us. And more often than not, they would be really upset, and they would really apologize, and it would lead to a real reconciliation. Because you can say, well, I'll forgive the person, even if they haven't asked. But there's a good chance you'll, you know, the expression, they buried the hatchet, but each one remembered exactly where the hatchet was buried. 
you know, people can, uh, so it's hard. And then there are instances in which Jewish law forbids forgiving, and that is you can't forgive for something that was done to somebody else. So you'll think, well, what's the big insight in that? Does anybody do that? And the truth is it's fairly common in modern Christian theology to advocate forgiveness even for others uh, who have been hurt in a situation. I'll give you two examples. The first is the Reverend John Miller. So you'll say, why am I picking on the Reverend John Miller, who nobody here has probably ever heard of? He's a Methodist minister in Martha's Vineyard. Because in 1997 or 98, he had an unusual experience for a minister. The Secret Service came to his church, and they told him that President Clinton, let's say, would be davening there. President Clinton would be attending a Sunday service there. You know, obviously, a president can't show up unannounced at a church. You know, they have to have it prepared with security. So Miller had the opportunity to prepare a sermon knowing that the president of the United States was going to be a captive audience. There's no way the president's going to start yawning during his sermon, and there's no way the president's going to get up and leave during his sermon. So though he knew there would probably be a considerable number of people in church that week, we can pretty much assume he wrote the sermon thinking he had that one, I'm going to say he had one shot at the president, but okay, he had one opportunity to reach the president. So he decided to speak on the theme of forgiveness. And in the middle of his sermon, he held up a giant photo of Timothy McVeigh. And he said, we as Christians are asked to forgive this man. Timothy McVeigh was, of course, the one who had carried out the bombing of the federal office building in Oklahoma. I learned an expression from him I had never previously known, the expression collateral damage. That's how he referred to the 24 children who were killed there. He said this was collateral damage. And of course, from a Jewish perspective, obviously nobody there had the right to forgive, including, by the way, the parents of those children. The only ones who can grant forgiveness are the victims. At most, the parents could say, we forgive you for the hurt you caused us. Nobody can forgive on behalf of the victim. In 2002, the Pope John Paul II, on 9-11-2002, said something. But before I tell you what he said, it's along the same lines. I want to say something else about it. I'm a very big admirer and lover of Pope John Paul II. I love him for many reasons. Number one, he helped bring down communism in Eastern Europe. No small feat. Two, he reached out to the Jewish community in extraordinary ways. He attended a synagogue service in Rome. He uh, prayed at the Kotel in Israel. And I'll tell you another story I learned from Yaffa Elias. Yaffa Elias, does anybody here go to Yeshiva Flatbush? where I went as a kid. David Elias was the principal, and Yaffa, his wife, was a real scholar on the Holocaust. She had her PhD. She wrote a book, Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust, but they really investigated historically every one of these stories. And the story I'm going to tell you, I know independent of Yaffa, because I know the family, uh, is accurate. In the early 40s, there was a Jewish family in a small city in Poland, and it was clear Jews were being deported and never being heard from again. This family was able to snuck out of the ghetto. They went to a Christian family who were old friends of theirs, and they entrusted their two-year-old son. And they said to the parents, after the war, if we survive, we'll come back. And if we don't survive, we have family in Montreal and in Washington, D.C. Please write them. Anyway, this Polish couple undertake to take care of this, their this two-year-old son goes on for four years. And 
uh, and their and the, the Polish couple were risking their lives because they had to leave the town because everybody there knew that they did not have children. So they would go to other towns. They were religious Catholics. They take the boy with them to church. The war ends. It's now 1946, and it's clear the parents are never coming back. They go to their local parish priest, and they tell him that they want to convert the child, baptize the child, and raise him. The priest says to them, tell me exactly the parents' instructions. And they were honest, and they told him what the parents had said. So the priest said to them, write to the family in Montreal and write to the family in Washington. If neither of them adopt the child, we'll baptize him, he'll be your child. They write to the two families, and both families want to adopt the child. The child first goes to Montreal. It was easier to get in there. A year later, he moves to Washington. That family was even a closer connection. And the families in Washington stay in touch with this Polish couple over the years. They help them. They send them money. You know, it's a very warm feeling, obviously. The man dies, only the woman living. And then one day in 1978, they get a letter from the woman in which for the first time she tells them that whole story about how she had gone to a parish priest and wanted to convert him. And she said, why am I telling you this now? Because yesterday that parish priest became Pope John Paul II. And I've met the family, so I, I know it's very accurate. Okay, now I can say something mildly critical about the Pope. I was not going to say anything critical until I established just how much I admired that man. What did the, okay, so what did he say on 9-11? He said, to give his exact quote, and may God, we pray today for the victims, and may God forgive and be merciful to the authors of this act. But obviously the only thing the people who carried out 9-11 regretted was that they didn't strike a half hour later. They struck at a quarter to nine in the morning. At 9.15 in the morning, they would have killed thousands of more people. The bottom line is this. When are we required to forgive? The majority of instances where the damage is not irrevocable and somebody really wants to be and asks. So reconcile. I would argue that when forgiveness is optional, it usually makes sense. It's the right thing to do to forgive. And obviously, the more limited instance when it's forbidden but anyway, so suddenly we start looking through Jewish sources and we find they address the deepest, most significant issues in our life. Let me deal with one other issue now, the issue of humility and self-esteem. Because sometimes we don't know, can they interfere with each other? The most famous law in the Torah is love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the explicit command? Love your neighbor. What's the implicit command? Love yourself. It's very important. You know, think about it. People tend to be better when they like themselves. When you got in trouble as a kid in school and you had to get a note from your parent and you came home, weren't you happy if your parents were in really good moods? Weren't you really worried if you came home and they were really under pressure and they were really annoyed and they weren't feeling good about themselves? The truth is we generally act better when we are feeling good about ourselves. There's a wonderful story they tell about the Chafetz Chaim. The Chafetz Chaim was a rabbi from White Russia, Raden, and he was known by the name of his book, The Lover of Life. He lived a very long life. The Chafetz Chaim was born in 1838. He died in 1933. He lived during the last period in history when it was possible to be famous without being widely recognized. Because in the mid-1800s, photography was very uncommon. It existed. You know, we've all seen pictures of the Civil War 
we've all, of course, seen photographs of Lincoln. But it was not so common in Eastern Europe, and it was not common at all among Orthodox Jews, many of whom questioned whether it even was appropriate to have photographs. So the Chafetz Chaim, as a relatively young man, it probably would have been in the 1870s, had published a book on the laws of unfair speech. The laws, many of us are familiar with the term Lashon Hara, not to speak badly, unfairly of others. He's on a train going to give a sermon, going to give a speech, he would travel around, and opposite him on the train is a man who we can see is obviously also a religious Jew. He starts talking, he asks the man where he's going, the man says, oh, I'm going into town to hear the Chafetz Chaim speak. He's the greatest Talmud Chacham, the greatest scholar, and the greatest tzaddik and the greatest saint in the Jewish world today. The Chafetz Chaim was uncomfortable hearing himself described in such grandiose terms. So he said, I happen to know the Chafetz Chaim. He's not such a big scholar, and he's certainly not a saint. The other man gets so outraged that outraged that he slaps him in the face. The train arrives in town, and that night the man goes to the speech where he sees to his utter mortification that the guy he slapped was none other than the Chafetz Chaim. So he runs over to him after the speech said, Rabbi, I had no idea it was you. Please forgive me. The Chafetz Chaim says, I have nothing to forgive you for. It was my honor you were defending. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. He said, on the contrary, I owe you a debt of gratitude. I've been going around telling people not to speak lush and horror about others. You taught me don't go around speaking ill about yourself either. And you know what? Just this past Shabbos, we of course read the first chapters of, of, of Gracious, of Genesis. And in the first chapter, if you notice, God says, I think six or seven times, and God saw that it was good. In one form or another, it says, and God saw that it was good. And I thought, God takes pride in his achievements. Isn't that a good model for us? I remember I knew a young man who grew up to achieve very great things, but he was a little too humble. Uh, when he was younger, whenever he would do something well and people would congratulate him, he would say, ah, it was nothing. And I said, first of all, it's insulting. If somebody thanks you, you should acknowledge. And, you know, and to just belittle it, it's like throwing that compliment back in their face. So he said, what should I say to people? I said, say, thank you very much. That's very kind. But, you know, that, that's really it. Can, there are some people who always belittle what they do. So they're in a permanent non-win situation. Because if they do something that doesn't work out well, they feel badly about it, and maybe they should. But even if it goes well, <clears throat> they find ways to be critical or other things of it. So that becomes very important. God takes pride in it, and we have to also learn, therefore, to take pride in our achievements and our accomplishments. By the way, this is not related to my speech, so I hope I don't go off track again and then totally forget what I was talking about. Yeah, what's the store in the world series? No, that's not what I'm, okay. No. God says six or seven times, and God saw that it was good. Who knows what is the first thing that God declares not good? It's in the second chapter. Yes, right. Lo tov hayot adam levado. It is not good for man to be alone. 
By the way, people tend to associate that exclusively uh, you know, with a man being alone, so to speak, romantically, because then it's immediately followed by the creation of Eve. It's not good for man to be alone. But it's true in general. We need community. This is exciting. I mean, it's exciting for me to be here with a large community, but it's exciting for the members of the community. People love it. People came out. Some people came to dinner before. People are coming to an event like this. It's very meaningful to be in community. I was reading an essay recently by Jonathan Sachs. You remember a book came out a number of years ago called Bowling Alone? Ten years after the sociologist at Harvard wrote that book uh, about how increasingly America was an individuated society and people used to be members of bowling leagues and now people go off and bowl alone, he actually did follow-up research, wrote another book, co-authored it with somebody, and I wish I had my notes with me on it, but basically what he discovered was that people who attend religious services with others score higher on every type of altruistic activity. Charity, doing work with the community, a whole host of things. He said attendance with a community at services on a somewhat regular basis is more determinative than any other issue, than gender, than religion, than age, than a whole host of things. And it's, you know, it's just a very, very remarkable thing because of that involvement with other people. To the extent it is more significant than if a person stays home and never goes to services and just prays alone. They don't end up then being so different in terms of communal activity. It's participation in community. So lo tove adam levado, it's not good for a person to be alone, doesn't only mean on the romantic, on the marriage level, it means on every level it's important to be really part of community. But I was emphasizing very much the talk of self-esteem. And we often do things that are counter to it. For example, parents will go to parent-teacher night, and they'll get such good reports and one bad report. And suddenly, the one thing that the child's not doing well in is the most important subject. But the truth is, it's usually not going to be all that important. I mentioned chemistry before. I was not good at it. We all knew at a young age that was not going to be determinative in my life. We knew I had to pass. I wanted to be able to get into college. But we also know people's strengths are much more important. And what so often happens in a punitive sense is that we focus on kids' weaknesses. So we're going to punish a kid who, and throw him off the basketball team because his grades were not good. The kid has one thing in his life he's proud of, so let's take that away from him. Does that make any sense? It is so destructive to an appropriate sense of self-esteem. You build on people's strengths. Yoram Lovavitch, who was a great Musser teacher at the Mir Yeshiva, in the last century, he said, as important as it is for a person to know his or her faults, it is even more important to know your strengths because it's the strengths that are ultimately going to enable you to overcome your faults. That's why it's so important to build up pride, not stupid pride, but build up pride in what are legitimate accomplishments. If I could undertake one change, if it could be made in America, I throw the idea out, anybody can go with it. If you have a family foundation of some sort and you're looking for a project other than supporting this program, if you're looking for any other project, this is my project. One change we could make in American life that would have the capacity to affect the world so deeply and profoundly, and it's a micro change. I know when we think of changes, we mainly think of social justice and macro changes. I'm talking about a micro change. 
if we could get parents to reserve the highest praise of their children for when their children do kind acts. Gen children generally get their highest praise for one of four things. For their academic accomplishments, for their athletic abilities, for their cultural abilities, and in the case of girls, for their looks. A child who gets very complimented on any of these issues feels good. God knows we all need all the compliments. But when you hear a parent say, oh, but so-and-so's a good kid, what they really usually say, oh, nothing to brag about. You know, if we, I'm not saying therefore don't compliment others, but if we reserve the highest praise for when children do kind acts, we would raise a generation of people who most love themselves when they were doing kind things. That's why this idea could transform the world. It could start with 100 people. It could start with one city. But it would just simply spread if that became the norm. Because it's not the norm in most households. We know what parents you know, are talking about. I always know, my friend Dennis always makes the point. He says, I always know I'm speaking to Jewish parents because within two minutes of my meeting them, they're telling me about the schools their children are going to. You know, the truth is, if we would reserve the highest praise when children did kinds act, it would have such a capacity to change everything. Or as Rabbi Professor uh, Dr. Tversky puts it, he said, how can you tell whether what's affecting you is low self-esteem or humility? Let's say you're approached to be on the board of this temple and, you know, no, or, or to take a higher position in the temple, be on the board, be an officer. And your first instinct is to say no. So analyze, why are you saying no? Is it because you really think you can't do the job? But, what, but if you can't do the job, then you should do it. And so you know what he said is the difference? How do we know if we're being guided by humility or low self-esteem? He said humility inspires, low self-esteem demoralizes. The famous quote attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. So remember, humility will inspire you to do more. And that becomes very critical. One last point I'll, I'll, I'll deal with, and then we'll open it up for some Q&A. Why is it so difficult to change? I, I want to point to three things that make it difficult for people to change. And believe me, there are more things than that. One is the tendency to blame others. And that goes back to the beginnings of human history. Adam and Eve, as we learned in last week's Parsha, yet we learned it every year, they eat from the apple. By the way, what is the first commandment in the Torah about food? What is it? It's not a trick. Well, it's a little bit of a trick question. Okay, what's the first? Okay, somebody has to be willing to try. Is it, are you all so humble or is it low self-esteem? What, what is the first commandment concerning food in the Torah? Yeah, don't eat of the tree. A friend of mine in Israel, a young rabbi, a very smart guy, Ian Pierce, said, no, if you really look at the Bible, the first commandment is, of every tree in the field you shall eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shouldn't eat. He said, it's really interesting. Everybody remembers it as a prohibition. We're actually told we can have everything except for that one. It's like going into a supermarket and saying to somebody, you can get anything you want here, but there's one item you can't get. You know, suddenly they get obsessed you know, they get obsessed with that, with that one item. But the tendency is Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God confronts Adam, and, and Adam says it was Eve. It's Eve's fault. God confronts Eve, said it was the snake's fault. <coughs> Nobody wants to take responsibility. And it's so important to do that. There was a young woman I knew when she was a teenager who 
get into trouble, and she always blamed it on the friend she was with. And I remember I once said to her, I'm very pessimistic about your future because you're the most unlucky person I know. You always fall in with a bad crowd. I said, ironically, if you would take responsibility, I'd be optimistic about you because if you can cause a problem, you can uncause a problem. But if it was never your fault, it means there's no reason to think it's ever going to improve. So taking responsibility is a big deal. One of the episodes I write about in my book on the Rebbe was an encounter that Jonathan Sachs, I feel it's appropriate to speak about Jonathan Sachs at this event, we're honoring Cy Sachs. Jonathan Sachs, the uh, immediate past chief rabbi of England, when he was 21, met with the Lubavitcher Rebbe in an encounter that he said ultimately influenced him to go into the rabbinate. But while talking to the Rebbe, he just mentioned in passing, I recently found myself in a situation, and then he went on to relate the situation. The Rebbe interrupted him and said, don't use that expression, I found myself in a situation. Why don't you say, I placed myself in a situation? Because if you place yourself in one situation, then you can place yourself in another situation. If you go around in life finding yourself in a situation, the very passivity of that attitude will limit any changes you can make. Tied in with that is the idea of saying that we had no choice. We just finished Yom Kippur. And one of the recurrent themes, of course, is the al for the sin I committed. And one of them is, al for the sin I committed towards you, either under compulsion or willingly. So, of course, the question is raised, what does it mean under compulsion? Because then it's not really a sin. Ernst Simon had a great line on that. He said, we said we were compelled, but we really weren't. We said I couldn't control my temper, but you really could have. We said I was under such financial pressure, and I did it, or things like that. So we have to also undertake that willingness to not attribute things to things beyond our control. There are changes, really, that we can make. Ernst Simon, by the way, was such an interesting figure. He was part of Martin Buber's inner circle, but he was the only one in that inner circle who was a fairly religiously observant Jew. And uh, he said sometimes when he got called up for an aliyah to the Torah, there was something in the Torah that he, he struggled with. So he said, I go up for the aliyah, but I don't feel good about it. So some fairly fundamentalist rabbi said, you have no right to start saying what you like in the Torah and what you don't. And he said, the verse, Shema Yisrael, has no more inherent sanctity than the verse for Timnai Tapi Legish. And Timna was a concubine, which is a verse in the, in the Torah. So Simon said, maybe on some abstract level you're right. But on the other hand, throughout history, thousands of Jews have died with the word Shema Yisrael on their lips. We've yet to hear of a Jew dying with the words, and Timna was a concubine on, on his lips. But anyway, so that's another reason, saying we had no choice when we had a choice. And a third thing which makes it impossible to change is believing that the evil we did was a good thing. As the prophet Isaiah says, Oi, woe unto those who call light darkness and darkness light. That, of course, is terrorism. The terrorists, at the very moment they are doing the most evil thing you can imagine, are calling out Allahu Akbar, God is great. You know, the very moment when they are so, and I'm talking only about Islamic, Islamist terrorism, obviously I'm talking about Muslims in general. But when they do that, think about it, they're associating God with evil deeds, which not only involves God in their thing, but causes other people to be alienated from God. So they actually place themselves beyond the possibility, to the extent we can imagine, particularly if they've murdered people, of forgiveness. 
So these are the sorts of things. What I wanted to do when I wrote the Code of Ethics is what can we find in Judaism that can help us? I'll give you okay, one example and then I really will end. How many of you here wish you had better control over your tempers? Now I'm going to get the honest answer to this question. How many of you here are seated next to someone who you wish had better control? <laughs> I'm going to send you out with one word of advice on anger. I sometimes do workshops, you know, a whole long thing, but here's a short one. No matter how angry you get at another person, restrict the expression of your anger to the incident that provoked it. That's where most people go wrong. And how many of your families, the level of first cousin and closer, are their relatives not on speaking terms? It usually happened because during a fight, people said something terrible, and nobody can hurt you as badly as somebody who really knows you well. So restrict the expression, which other words means that in an argument, you can never use these two words, always and never. You're always inconsiderate. You never think before you act. What's the other person supposed to say? You know, you are right. I'm a particularly stupid person. I do never think before I act. You know, first of all, you think you have a right to be angry at them, but you don't have a right to lie. You have the moral high ground because you did some, they did something bad. But then if you start lying about them, uh, you're doing something bad. Anyway, so what we really looked at is a whole you know, number of issues in which we can change. What we discussed concerning forgiveness and the levels of forgiveness and why even if optional, there might be good reasons to forgive. Uh, the difficulties with humility and self-esteem. What's, well, what's really behind it? Or is it low self-esteem or is it humility? And low self-esteem demoralizes, humility inspires, and the difficulties in, in changing. You know, the unwillingness to accept responsibility. About 200 years ago, one of the early leading figures in the Hasidic movement was Nachman of Bratzlov. Nachman lived less than 40 years. He was a great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. And one of Nachman's teachings was, if you're not going to be better tomorrow than you were today, what need do you have for tomorrow? I once ended a speech on that note, and somebody said, Joseph, that is a real downer way to end the speech. So let me reword Rav Nachman. I wish all of you a very good today and an even better tomorrow. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Some of the most perplexing questions of human nature and of human ethics today. So grateful for you. Thanks. I want to invite some questions, um, and I only want to invite questions where you share your name, you ask a question in a sentence or two, and end that with a question mark. Um, thank you. Good. My name is David Lieberman. Rabbi, you had uh, mentioned and even told a joke about uh, nature versus nurture, you know, the effect on someone's right. life, heredity, or their environment. Right. And you also mentioned the idea of Gilgul, the turning of the soul, reincarnation, and someone uh, forgiving someone who may have harmed them in a previous life. Right. It seems to me that perhaps there is a third type of influence on a person's life, it's not just nature versus nurture, but a third, a third influence on a person's life 
may have been something that they did in their life before. Do the sages have anything to say about that? No, you find that, stuff, well, it's the issue of reincarnation. You find it really mainly more in Kabbalistic teachings. And look, it has intrigued me. Have any of you ever read anything by Brian Weiss, Many Lives, Many Masters? So as you know, Weiss was a, a psychiatrist who came to believe in the efficacy of it. I ended up actually writing a novel, uh, Heaven's Witness, about the whole subject of reincarnation. Uh, the fact that none of you have heard of it is probably why I did not write a sequel. <laughs> so, you know, Weiss claims, you know, Weiss claims that that could be a very real factor in, 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 in life and that he claimed, for example, he was treating a woman uh, who had an enormous, no, which is not that surprising in Jewish life. She had an enormous hatred I think it was of Germans, or it, it had gone back to a Holocaust experience, but then she was replicating it. She had an enormous hatred of all Arabs. And then he said, you know, you, and he projected her into what could be a future life. She could come back as an Arab. You know, I remember I was challenged when I was working on reincarnation by people said, well, if it's concealed from us, that knowledge, why try and reveal it? And I said, well, can you imagine if uh, white Southern slave owners had believed in reincarnation? thought maybe they'd come back as black people. You think it might not have had an effect on them? You know, I mean, it's a way, but I don't find, as again, you'd have to go, in Kabbalah, you, in Kabbalistic and Hasidic texts, you really do find it. Uh, but I haven't, uh, I haven't really seen it much discussed in others. By the way, I just realized one of the other traits I was going to speak about was gratitude, but at least I want to express some gratitude to a few people here. You know, obviously, the fact that I'm in this Cy Sachs uh, Memorial Lecture, but also I want to express, well, Rabbi Lieberman is one of the rabbis here, but I want to thank Rabbi Chernow and Rabbi Capel, who I know from many, many years ago uh, we have met, and of course Rabbi Yanklovich. By the way, are there any other rabbis here? If any of you are ever, please come over afterwards. I also want to thank my former camp counselor, Mark Gross, known to most of you as Dr. Mark Gross, but I know him from Mossad, and my dear friend Sandra Zerner, who studied with with me at the Brandeis Guardian Institute. So I'm very happy to see all of you. Anybody else who knows me from an early, I was gonna say from a past life, but now I'm gonna <laughs> knows me from the past, please come over. Yes. Uh, hi, Judy Crute. I was just wondering what your definition of forgiveness was. Okay, what is my definition of forgiveness? Definition of forgiveness, if somebody asks you and somebody has hurt you, if you say that, number one, you are no longer holding that grudge against them, and you will try and be open to them without allowing that incident to totally dominate your recollections of them. So it's the question of letting go. But let me ask you, because you must have something in mind. Could you, I know that everybody's just supposed to say their names and ask their question. What is your definition of forgiveness? The one I've recently enjoyed is giving up the theory or the hope that the past will be different. That the past will be different. Yeah, okay. Very good. Okay. No, I like that. That's an interesting way of putting it. By the way, I want to give you one piece of advice. Shmuley heard me tell this before, so forgive me for inflicting it on you again. I'm not going to offer any insights on the current presidential race. Uh, 
you didn't come here to hear them from me, but my insight is for the day after the presidential race. When as somebody, I was talking with Sandra earlier and she had now pointed out the day after the presidential race, there are gonna be some very happy people and some very unhappy people. And how do we keep, how do we try and hope for some equilibrium? And I mentioned an event uh, that many of you will remember, those of you who are younger won't, uh, that when Ronald Reagan was president, the Jewish community had two issues that it had with him as president uh, on Jewish levels. One was the selling of AWACS. There was a big deal made with Saudi Arabia that the community was very unhappy about. But the more public one was when he went to visit the Nazi cemetery in Bitburg. The president of Germany had invited him to come. Uh, it was only, uh, Reagan accepted, thinking it was only gonna be regular Nazi soldiers who had been drafted. It turned out it included SS officers. And so Wiesel confronted the president. I asked Wiesel once, I said, I was doing an interview with him. And I said, were you nervous to get up at the White House? Because he had just gotten an award from the president. And then he turns and says, Mr. President, your place is with the victims, not with us. I said, were you nervous in confronting the president? Wiesel, who was funny, said to me, what was I nervous about? What's the president going to do to me? He said, you're talking to a Jew from Romania. I'm nervous when I see a policeman in the street. I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid of the president. But anyway, but Shimon Peres was then the prime minister of Israel. You know, so anybody from a Jewish group could get up and say something not nice about the president. It's not going to have massive ramifications. But he's the prime minister who has to deal with Reagan. So he was in a very sensitive situation, and he gave a brilliant response. He said, when a friend makes a mistake, the friend remains a friend, and the mistake remains a mistake. And I just hold those thoughts over the coming months as there is going to be some difficult times. Yes. A question from one of our team fellows. So you were talking, uh, Rachel Pressman, um, you were talking about happiness and how, like, you only know you have it. I mean, like, you only discover happiness when you don't have it. So it's kind of vague and broad, but when did you discover your happiness? Okay. Okay, number one, I said it's sad when people are in a situation where uh, they can discover their happiness only when they no longer have it. Now, ideally, one can. Look, part of life is blessed and is luck, and it ties in with what Rabbi Lieberman was saying. We are born, to some extent, with predispositions. I am, by nature, an optimist. I'm an optimist for myself. I'm not always so optimistic for the world. And uh, one reason, strangely enough, was my mother was not. My father was an optimist. My mother was not. My mother, well, I'll tell you one quote my mother used to say, which will immediately make you realize she was not an optimist. She said, the only people I know who are happy are people I don't know well. She stopped saying it when one friend of ours said, does that mean that when people come to know your mother well, they're no longer happy? <laughs> I am by nature from a young age, I, I have as a rule been blessed with a fairly optimistic nature. No, but you're right. I mean, if I think about it, because I in my teenage years and others had a lot of insecurities and other things. I think as I got older, okay, this is an encouraging thing to say. I, I, I'm, I have gotten happier over the years. Let me ask, how many of you, as much as you can recall, when you were 20, so obviously I'm speaking to older members of the audience, how many of you are happier now than when you were 20? Okay, 
I'm not going to ask, but, but that's a very encouraging thing. No, that, you know, it's funny because we often, you know, think, oh, how lovely, you know, and, and that's why I want kids to have happy childhoods. But even so, there are so many things, so many insecurities. So if you can learn, by the way, the good thing that I got from my mother having said that, though, to me was, I, I am blessed. I do not have envy of other people. The nicest compliment I ever got, and it wasn't given to me directly, it was something that somebody said about me to another person. He said, Joseph is genuinely happy when his friends do well. And I don't, you know, and it happens to be true, but I don't consider it, you know, so I've never had envy because I was very conscious. I'm, I'm not, so yes, but I think as you get older, life in that regard can be better. Thank you. Just an important question. Thank you. My name is We have uh, just experienced the most rancorous presidential campaign in the history of this nation. It will soon be decided nine days from now. We will be left with feelings of rancor, unforgivingness, divisiveness, an increasing sense of isolationism, and a uh, sense of becoming divided as a nation. How will we somehow find a way to forgive each other and ourselves for losing sight of the common good? Okay, I don't know how we can do it for the nation as a whole. The reason I told that story about terrorists was to relate to us on our more individual levels with people who might have had rancorous disputes. That when a friend makes a mistake, the friend remains a friend, the mistake remains a mistake. Because what we have a tendency to do when we're angry at other people is to always attribute to them the worst possible motives. I actually don't, you know, look, I don't think we're at the level the United States was in 1860 when we had an actual civil war. Could have gotten much worse than that. To this day, you know, the percentage of Americans who were killed then was horrific. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, we have to, one of the interesting things I learned about the Lubavitcher Rebbe when I was uh, researching his life was one of the Rebbe's techniques for how to disagree without becoming disagreeable was he would only attack ideas. He would never attack people. So he would never mention people by name. I spoke to a rabbi, I'm forgetting his first name, Seligson, uh, who wrote a 1,600-page index to all of the Rebbe's speeches. He could not think of any instances where the Rebbe attacked someone by name. Now, what was remarkable about that was I would then find that some of the people who he had attacked, whose ideas he had attacked, a year later, he was working closely with them on other things. The horrible thing about the rancor is that it makes it impossible for people to, to forgive. It makes it impossible for people to work together. And that's why we need the depersonalization of the rancor, which has reached terrible, terrible proportions here. And I don't know how. You know, in 1996, one of the few efforts I've ever made uh, to actually influence American life on a very broad scale is I got two senators to sponsor a resolution to establish a Speak No Evil Day in the United States. I wanted something that sounds naive, that was it. I went, I had a book coming out called Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. I went to the office of two senators, Joe Lieberman and Connie Mack, who was a senator from Florida, and actually sponsored the resolution. The problem is I found that I had to write up the resolution. I thought, you know, all these things got taken care of. I had to go, we were living in Boulder. I had to go to the law library in Boulder 
And it's one of those things that starts with like five paragraphs. Whereas, you know, whereas. And they, we didn't get enough sponsors to get the resolution passed. But the idea was there would be one day every year when nobody could speak ill of others. And ill of others and to others. Because it's not only how we speak about ourselves. I would venture to guess that more people in this room have been hurt by things people have said to you than things they said about you. You know, most people, I think, if they're in a therapist's office, I'm assuming or I think to a Jewish audience, a fair number of people here have been in therapy, <laughs> are in therapy, will be in therapy, are therapists. You know, probably more of the things you discuss are hurtful things people have said to you. Now, I don't know. It's a strange thing, the fracturing of American society that came out in this, you know, that has come out in this campaign. I simply don't know what it means. Is it a sign that the country really is fractured so badly that Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again? And yet it didn't seem, you know, that bitter in the past. And certainly, we had an election four years ago and eight years ago where it was civil. So I, can that come back? I, I don't know. I really don't know. Obviously, it'll be the job of whoever is president to try and reach out and reestablish that. And I don't know that I'm confident uh, that will happen. So I will say this. Okay, let me conclude. Maybe is this? Is this no, we're going to take uh, we're going to take probably two more questions. Okay. But. So I'll just okay. I'll conclude my response to this, and then we'll take a few more. When I speak sometimes on Jewish humor, I tell a story that in Israel, there were a group of elderly retired men who get together every day at a cafe and they talk over the world situation. And given the world situation, their talks are always rather downbeat. One day, one of the men in the group shocks them all by saying, you know what, I'm an optimist. They're all taken aback. But then somebody says, but wait, if you're an optimist, why do you look so worried? He said, you think it's easy to be an optimist? <laughs> okay. Okay, great. My name is Stella Sandig, um, and if I have a family member, a very close family member who I love very, very much, but seems to gravitate towards consistent negativity, what can I do to stop that negativity from affecting my happiness and self-esteem? Okay, it's, it's a funny question to try and answer in a public setting because I can almost only answer it by asking you questions you might not want to answer in a public setting. Like, is this somebody that if you could, you would want to more minimize contact with? We're hoping the mother's not here tonight. <laughs> okay, first of all, if anybody knows this woman and knows the family, I'm really saying this seriously, you cannot repeat that this happened because it could make matters worse. If you come over to me afterwards, I, I will speak to you. I know, again, because it, it's inappropriate, you know, it's, okay. Uh, hello, good evening, thank you very much. Um, my name is Robin Young. Earlier in your presentation, uh, you did say something that Judaism has a radical insistence of free will. And this has actually been an interesting discussion with some of the same colleagues. Um, I was hoping that you can say, what do you think we do not have free will on? 
Because he did say some things we do and some things we don't. Judaism so. believes that we have free will in the moral sphere. That's what Maimonides insists on. Maimonides writes that if you don't believe we have free will in the moral sphere, then the Bible has no relevance. It's filled with lies. What's the point of telling people to do something if they can't do it? It would be as absurd, as absurd as ordering you or me to practice every day till we can run a four-minute mile. So if you demand the impossible of people, you can't. So that's where Judaism has its insistence. And that, I think, is really the only meaning of free will in the moral sphere. You can't say to everybody, oh, if you only buckle down and work hard, you'll have such success. They might or they might not. And it's not even fair. Remember I heard Harold Schulweis, a rabbi in L.A., say years ago, it's not even fair when you say to somebody, oh, your parents say to a child, well, as long as you did your best. He said, how often can we do our best? No, we can't even do that all the time. But in the moral sphere, we have to be sensitive and take responsibility. Now, some issues are harder for some people than others in, you know, in that moral sphere. And admittedly, you know, coming out of certain backgrounds, it could also be harder. But that's the area in which Judaism insists we do have free will. Just before we take our last question, I want to let folks know um, that in the World Series, we're in the bottom of the eighth, and the Cubs are up 3-2. We're in the bottom of the eighth, and the Cubs are up 3-2. So they only have to go one half to Okay, she, she's going to ask okay. her question personally after. So, Rabbi Tulishkin, just any closing remarks you want to make? Yes. I'm hoping the Cubs win. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.